Number one, are you ready? Are you ready? We will build a great wall along the southern border. And Mexico will pay for the wall. Welcome to Entry Denied, a podcast about immigration in the United States in the time of Donald Trump. I'm Alex Alenikoff, director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York. And I'm Deb Amos. I report on immigration for National Public Radio. During the 2016 campaign, candidate Trump promised a big, beautiful wall on the U.S. southern border to stop the entry of undocumented migrants. It was a dramatic image stretching from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico, a distance of nearly 2,000 miles, and it captured the imagination of his supporters. He mentioned it over and over and over again. And in office, he did the same thing. He pursued construction of that wall with vigor. To understand how much has been accomplished and how much still remains to be done, we talked with Nick Miroff, reporter for The Washington Post, who has covered this story since the beginning of the Trump administration. Nick, the wall became a signature issue for candidate Donald Trump. He talked about it every time he was on the stump. How much of a wall was on the border before he came to office? When he took office, there was already about 650 miles of barriers along the border. So that's about one third of its total length. Most of that consisted of a very basic barrier that is designed to stop cars or trucks or off-road vehicles from driving through, especially in remote areas where it'd be very difficult for, for someone to walk. And then obviously in many parts of the border that are especially you know mountainous or along the Rio Grande Valley, there's no uh, barrier at all. Um, And then I should just add that uh, when all is said and done and the Trump administration wraps up its efforts at the end of this first term, the president won't really have added very much to the overall amount of border that has a barrier on it. What he'll really have done is completely changed what that barrier looks like. Congress certainly has has passed plenty of money for border security. Why wasn't a wall part of border security before the Trump administration? After the September 11th terrorist attacks, there was a new focus on border security, obviously. Democrats and Republicans both agreed to sort of fortify the barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border. That project was very much about building formidable barriers in areas that have, you know, a lot of traffic like San Diego or El Paso, but not a need to build a structure across hundreds of miles of mountain and desert where there are very few arrests or or illegal crossing. So the border is 2,000 miles long. Did Trump actually promise to build a 2,000-mile wall, or was he just talking about filling in where the Border Patrol folks thought they most needed some new barriers? I mean, I think if you go back and you watch those campaign speeches, he didn't say, we're going to build a wall where it strategically makes sense to the Border Patrol. He said, we want a wall to close the border with Mexico. His language very specifically evoked the threat of migrants coming from Mexico who could be rapists or who could be 
drug dealers are out to, to do America harm. And when it came time to implement that vision, I then Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly came out fairly early and said, well, we're not going to build a, a wall from sea to sea. It will be in, in the areas where we need it. You know, there's been an evolutionary process that this president has gone through. They all say things uh, during the course of campaigns that may or may not be fully informed. What's the estimated cost for constructing what the wall that they now think they can and want to build? So they have obtained about $15 billion so far. And there are plans to increase that to closer to $20 billion. There was lots of reporting on a wall that would have paint that would heat up so that if you touched it, you would recoil and the tops would be pointed so that you couldn't climb over the top. There were even suggestions from the White House that there would be a moat with alligators or snakes. Were those serious design issues or was that a, a sense of his frustration or simply keeping the wall in the minds of his supporters? Well, we got to remember that the president comes from a real estate world and thinks of himself as a developer. Early on, U.S. Customs and Border Protection came up with their design specifications, the steel baller design that would have anti-climb panel, like a steel panel at the top to make it even harder for people to try to climb over it. And that is the design that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers put out there for contractors to bid on. But fairly soon after that, the president decided that he didn't like the way that that looked. He, he started making design suggestions, requests for changes, but some of them he has really stuck to and insisted that the Army Corps and U.S. Customs and Border Protection actually pursue. And the, the main one is this idea that the barrier should be painted black. He first began talking about that in, in 2018, and successive Homeland Security of officials and, and Customs and Border Protection officials have tried to talk him out of it, to, you know, telling him that, that that's going to represent a long-term you know, maintenance liability because you're going to have to repaint it. But the president has, has insisted that this thing needs to be painted black, and so we're going to have hundreds of miles of, of a black-painted border wall. Trump repeatedly said that Mexico was going to pay for this wall. That was part of his campaign from start to finish. What happened to that? So that part of the proposal fell by the wayside fairly early on, given the necessities of getting the project going and the Mexican government's very firm position that it wanted nothing to do with you know, financing this project. This has been entirely funded by U.S. taxpayers, and really two-thirds of it have been funded by the White House's effort to, to grab money that was budgeted for other things. During the campaign, you know, he took enormous ridicule from the Democrats that Mexico would never pay for that wall. And yet he somehow managed to, to pivot to the U.S. taxpayers paying for the wall without really paying much of a price for that. Why, why do you think that is? This border wall is really two things. On the one hand, it is one of the largest federal infrastructure projects in U.S. history. It is being entirely funded by U.S. taxpayers, and half the country doesn't support the effort. On the other hand, it is the most important symbol of Trumpism. His most militant supporters very much, I think, view it as uh, an effort to build the Trump presidency and that by building it, they are 
fulfilling his promise and and building the, the presidency itself. And that's one reason why completing his objective in, in terms of putting hundreds of miles of barrier down is so important to his to his reelection. I think that the president and many of his supporters feel like they have to get it built by November in order for him to win. And it's a repudiation of the the governments of the of the past several decades and and the United States's integration into the global economy and, and globalization. A wall is more than a symbol. A wall on the southern border is about policy, and it's about immigration. Does the wall slow the numbers of migrants who are coming to the United States? Ultimately, that's the test of its success. That is the point of the wall. Does it do that? When skeptics have raised doubts about the wall's effectiveness in in controlling migration and particularly illegal migration, the administration pushed back with this phrase, walls work. Walls work 100%. And I think that on some level, they're obviously right. No one would argue with that. And having significant, formidable barriers in urban areas like San Diego or El Paso, where it's very easy for someone to jump across the border and quickly blend in and disappear you know, into the urban landscape. I think there's no question that, that having a, a big structure like that is an asset to U.S. law enforcement. The, the doubt comes in when, it, when you're looking at those remote desert areas where there are already very few crossings and what is the operational and enforcement benefit of having this big structure out there. When illegal immigration levels under President Obama fell to their lowest level in nearly 50 years, that was not because of infrastructure changes. That was the result of a whole suite of factors that range from you know, falling birth rates in Mexico to job creation in, in Latin America to legal changes in, in our immigration system. And similarly, in, in 2018 and 19, when the, the Trump administration faced a border crisis because record numbers of Central American families and, and children were crossing the border seeking humanitarian protection, having big barriers didn't bring really any benefit to the Trump administration at all. There are other other factors that shape migration flows. So this has been a cat and mouse game on the border for years. And whenever the cat makes a move, the mice figure out how to counter that move. Will the wall have the same effect on these two sides? Will the smugglers find ways to get around this wall? You know, we've reported on smugglers figuring out how to cut through it already with demolition tools. So the president, you know, at his rallies, consistently talking about how he was building something impenetrable. And, you know, it turns out that smugglers are already figuring out how to adapt to it, either sawing through it with conventional power tools that are available at any Home Depot or using these kind of makeshift ladders to go over it. And while that's not going to be the kinds of methods that will allow large numbers of people to cross, it still shows that smuggling organizations will adapt quickly and, and find ways to defeat it. He promised a wall that would be 2,000 miles. He said Mexico would pay for it. And what I'm hearing you say is Mexico obviously is not paying for it. And much of what he has built is where there was already fencing to begin with. So some might say uh, this has been a failure. Do you see him able to go to the country with the wall as a success, given the progress that's been made? 
I think one of the things that happens when you and you actually stand next to this thing, it's it's very difficult to say that that he didn't build it or that nothing happened or that he's been a failure. So even though he hasn't quite realized the vision that he laid out on the campaign trail in 2016, he has still achieved something tangible and imposing and dramatic along the border. And if a democratic administration takes over, they are going to have a very difficult decision on their hands what to do about it. Do you leave it in place? Do you take it down? Do you maintain it? And particularly if so many of your supporters detest it and view it as a symbol of racism or as a symbol of anti-immigrant sentiment, what do, you, what do you do with that giant structure out there across so much of our border? We've been talking about a physical wall, an imposing construction project, concrete bollards and black paint. There are also people who live along that border. For them, the wall's not just a symbol. It's likely to be in their backyards. So let's hear from some of those border residents. D.W. Gibson spent the past few years interviewing them. His recently published book is called 14 Miles Building the Border Wall. D.W., thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. So this book is filled with characters. It's more about people than it is about the wall, but it's them interacting with the wall. Why did you call it 14 Miles? I called it 14 Miles because I focus in on a 14-mile stretch of the border from the Pacific Ocean out to the Otay Mesa Desert, uh, where they were building eight prototypes of a border wall in the fall of 2017. And that 14 stretch of border, it's worth noting, already had, before they started working on the prototypes, two fences at the border, and in a couple of places, three fences. So uh, they were actually working to replace some of that old fencing. And that's something I think that gets lost in a lot of discussions too, the fact that there's very little progress on an actual wall. Most of it has been replacing existing fencing. DW spoke to many, many people at the border. Why don't you describe a few of the the folks you talked to and and what they thought about uh, the wall going up? I talked to over 150 people for this book, and there are so many different perspectives in terms of, of the wall, some of them more predictable than others, and some of them you know, uh, really surprised me. A few that stand out, there was a gentleman named Edgar Sandoval, whose parents were Mexican immigrants uh, who came to the U.S. when he was quite young and really taught him, you know, as a lot of first-generation immigrants do, the, the value of assimilation into America, right? Become an American, uh, learn the language, English, um, and respect law enforcement. This was something that was really drilled into Edgar Sandoval. And he told me a great story about growing up in Chula Vista, which is just a few miles north of the border there in San Diego County, and being in an assembly with friends. And uh, it was a big Mexican population of the community, and they they raised the Mexican flag at a school assembly uh, before raising the American flag. And he says, when they raised the Mexican flag, all the kids cheered really loud. And when they raised the American flag, a lot of kids booed. And that contrasted with what his father had taught him about respecting the country and respecting law enforcement. And Edgar ended up going into a program called the Explorers Program, which is a program run by Border Patrol where they take teenagers and spend time with them on a regular basis and essentially groom them to be uh, uh, Border Patrol agents. And today he's a Border Patrol agent. And he really talked about the border in a way that a lot of people talk about the border 
people who favor the idea of a wall, as, as Edgar does. And he talked about it in terms of private property, right? Thinking about the country as a house. This is your house. And you want to know who's coming into this house. You want to know who's going to be here. And I think that that's something that's really essential to understanding how we sort of think about the wall, the idea of the wall, and the idea of the border. It's really often a, along the lines of private property, an extension of that idea of the white picket fence, if you will, applying that to the country writ large and viewing the border as that place where we can draw a line, mark it as the place where our achievement is recognized and our responsibility is recognized, that sort of lined in the sand. And we actually have a, a clip, I think, of Edgar talking about this idea of viewing the border as an entry point to your private home. And there was one kid that was in the corner, and I saw him. He was looking down on us. So what I did was targeting him. And, uh, hey, man, what's going on? I go, uh, I go, so, and I just started talking to him for everybody. And he was answering because he had to. And I'm like, so what's up, man? I go, what's your take on, on us, on the Migra? What's your take on us? What do, you, what do you think? He goes, I have a question. How can you do that to your own people? And I'm like, so by, I go, by your own people? I go, what do you mean? I go, am I a Mexican citizen? And he goes, no, but you're obviously Mexican. I go, I'm very, I go, I'm very proud of it. I'm Mexican descent. I go, but I go, I'm also, you see my patch here? see this flag over here I said uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an American I go and uh, my job is to protect you you're my people so what you, I, now what you're trying to ask me I know very clearly what you're trying to ask me I said you how can I grab poor innocent people and uh, you know send them back to, to Mexico where they're from correct yeah I'm like okay well when uh, let's say you have a house and I give you the thing you have a house and you're gonna buy people over don't you wanna know who's coming over don't you want? Don't you want to have an? Yeah. Okay. So if ten people come over, you don't know any of them. Are you willing to allow them in your house, just hang out, or would you want to know who's coming in your house? I guess I know. Okay. Well, think about it, man. He goes. That makes sense. How does his audience respond to that argument? He's talking to a, a group of students who are actually kind of uh, suspicious of law enforcement, and he talks about that at the outset, and and uh, he has to sort of win them over. And actually, that's an argument that seems to, to work for most of them. And indeed, I think it works for a lot of Americans, this parallel between thinking about your own home, your, a fence in front of your home, your own front door, and thinking about the border. You spoke to a person named Jonathan Yost, who had a pretty different view of the wall than Edgar Sandoval. What did he think? So Jonathan Yost is a young man who grew up in a you know privileged uh, white family, a middle-class uh, family. He had an experience as a young man where he got drunk at a party, uh, unwisely got into a car, had a terrible accident, uh, wound up getting pulled over by the police after that accident. And the police officer asked for his ID. Jonathan didn't have any ID on him, had his parents' car, but he had a military ID on him because his dream was to be in the army and he had just enlisted. And the officer uh, took pity on Jonathan, didn't make him take a breathalyzer, didn't uh, take him in uh, to, to uh, put him behind bars. He just called his father and let his father take him home. And Jonathan came to realize over several years of thinking about that incident and seeing the experiences of friends that he had that were African-American who had so many run-ins with the police. He came to realize the privilege that was contained in that moment and how he had been spared. And he wanted to 
to grow from that. It really opened up his perspective on life and it motivated him to become, in his words, a servant to people who'd been oppressed by the, by the law enforcement that had let him go. Now what he does is he works with an organization called Border Angels that goes into the desert and drops off jugs of water for migrants who are crossing um, and uh, running out of water. Jonathan says, you know, he really views his life now as he views himself as a servant to uh, to minorities and migrants in particular who are trying to get into this country. We have a little bit of audio of him out on a water drop that I joined him for in the desert a couple of years ago. So what is our purpose out here? It's about building empathy. It's about learning. It's about becoming educated, not just in a classroom, reading a, an article, watching a video on your Facebook feed. This is about being out here on the ground and getting a little glimpse. Make no mistake, what you got in your hand there, that jug, that jug, that jug, all these jugs that you brought, it can make the difference between life and death for, for a mother, a daughter, an uncle, an aunt. What you brought today, I mean, that is the difference between life and death for a lot of people. A lot of people have died along our border. A lot of people have died right out here. This is not some purely educational exercise, all right? What we do, we've been doing it for 20 years and because it has saved lives. All right, you came out here, you brought the water. Let's do it. How did Jonathan Yost talk to you about the wall? For Jonathan, the wall is just an act of violence. You know, it's it's something that that serves to cut off people who the American economy, American society writ large, uh, needs. Um, and he feels like it's a betrayal of of the narrative of this country, how this country has come to be composed over the last 200 plus years and a waste of resources. He'd love to see those resources redirected into better visa distribution, more legal opportunities uh, for people to come into the country. Let's talk about Rocky De La Fuente, a developer, a politician, a man who flew over this region and saw his future. Rocky is a very interesting character, and I think he helps us to get away from this binary that we often have in our conversations about the, the wall. You know, I'm for it or I'm against it. Rocky uh, complicates that conversation, and Rocky is definitely not in favor of the wall. In fact, many times he said, you know, the idea of a wall is stupid, it's unrealistic. Rocky says, what we need are more border crossings. And Rocky doesn't say this because he thinks we need more opportunities for, for people to go visit family in Mexico or for students to get back and forth across the border. But he wants to build more commercial crossings, right? More crossings that are designed for 18-wheelers to bring the products that are being manufactured in the factories, the maquiladores of Mexico, to the shelves of American stores. His main goal is how can we monetize the border? And Rocky is, we should say, a really classic immigrant story as well. His parents were upper middle class in Tijuana, his father a car salesman. They made sure he was born in San Diego so he could have American citizenship. He grew up to build a car sales uh, empire with his father. They sort of drifted over into real estate. And um, yeah, Rocky taught himself uh, to, to fly, took flying lessons in the, in the 70s and discovered this area, the Otay Mesa Desert, and saw how undeveloped it was and just looked at that as an opportunity to buy up a bunch of desert land that nobody wanted that might be valuable someday. And indeed, it is now valuable because the spot where they were building the eight prototypes. It should be noted, they tore those prototypes down. They're no longer there. And what are they building in that exact spot where those prototypes were? They're building a commercial crossing. Um, and Rocky sold them the land that made that possible. And now he's gonna be able to, to monetize that area with industrial parks and shipping lots and, and all kinds of facilities. Did you come to a decision as you 
spoke to all these characters on the border about should we have a more stringent border or should we have a more open one? You know, I, some things did become clarified for me as I, I, I worked on this book. I think that the reality I saw on the ground was that we've created a situation where the wall or the idea of a wall, which is really a myth, right? We have all these sort of segments of fencing. The idea of a 2,000 mile wall is really a myth. But the idea of putting up barriers at the, at the border is really about keeping people out, right? And we have all these international trade agreements, NAFTA and revised NAFTA, that are about creating a, a way for products to flow so freely. But we do not value the people that make those products possible. And I think that we would be better served to put our energy into creating more ports of entry for people to get into the country legally, to make our ports more secure. After all, the vast majority of crime interdicted at the border is interdicted at the ports of entry, not uh, in the open border by border patrol agents. It's interdicted by customs officers at ports of entry. So creating more ports of entry for people to cross legally and creating more opportunities to recognize that workers are competing in a globalized labor market. That's not a future to think about. That's our present. That's where we are right now. I think we have to find a way to honor that and create more freedom of movement for those workers. We live in polarized political times. And you've described three very different narratives here. Edgar's narrative of protecting the nation, Jonathan's humanitarian narrative of saving lives, and, and Rocky's narrative of entrepreneurialism. Is there a way you think that we could come to a national consensus on this, or are we really in this divided narrative world? I do think that there are a few points of consensus that we should pay attention to. And I think that the key one is the one I already touched on about respect for workers. And, and let's focus in on that word, right? Not Americans or immigrants. After all, many Americans are migrants, right? People have moved from state to state looking for work. So workers in the world writ large, finding a way to create freedom of movement for them to have their rights enforced. The idea of enforcing labor rights is something that unifies the likes of Bernie Sanders and Steve King. And I'm not kidding about that. And I think that at, at first glance, that might feel a little bit adjacent to the idea of the border, but that is essential to immigration reform and border security. If we can get there in terms of enforcing those labor laws, it really clarifies the picture at the border for us and we can start talking more accurately about border security. By focusing on workers and the rights of workers, um, one might be led to a, a different conclusion. Uh, Donald Trump has now issued presidential proclamations that keep foreign workers out in this time of economic crisis, saying that bringing workers in uh, during the pandemic will actually have them compete with American workers, so many of whom are now uh, out of jobs. How would you respond? I would uh, encourage the president to go talk to uh, the farmers who can't find the labor they need. Uh, go talk to, to factory owners uh, who can't find the labor they need. There's this reality that we have trouble confronting as Americans that while many people, millions of people are out of work right now, and we need to be sensitive to that and find solutions to that problem. Uh, many, most of those Americans are not willing to do uh, the hard back-breaking work uh, in agriculture or in manufacturing. Um, and that's a reality we really haven't confronted either. Uh, if those employers are still looking for workers, those employers are still looking for workers. And if Americans aren't taking those jobs, those employers are going to find people who will do those jobs. 
That's it for this episode of Entry Denied. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to Cassidy Giordano, production assistant for this episode, and Catherine McGann, content manager for EntryDeniedPodcast.com. Our producer and engineer is Sahil Ansari, and our music is composed by Eli Elenikoff. Check out our show notes on EntryDeniedPodcast.com. And when you're searching for us, put the whole thing in. And you'll find a lot of resources to help you go even deeper into some of the issues we talked about in this episode. And please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear from you. 